0: Welcome, I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, clinical psychologist and clinical director of psychotherapy education and training at Novamind. Thank you for joining us on Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, a podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and mental health. If you're a therapist, clinician, guide, healer, psychedelic enthusiast, or simply curious about psychedelics and mental health, then you are in the right place. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Reed Robison, and Vari Macbeth. Dr. Robison is a psychiatrist and a seasoned psychedelic researcher and clinician. He's done a lot to further the development of ketamine as a psychotherapy enhancement tool and currently serves as the chief medical officer at NovaMind. Vari is a clinical social worker with extensive experience as a therapist working with ketamine to treat a number of mental health conditions. Today we explore the concept of the self. It's a big conversation. We discuss what the self is, the multiplicity of selves within all of us, what psychedelics can teach us about the self, the potential value of self-disillusion experienced on psychedelics, the importance of self-integration, especially after a psychedelic experience, pathological self-concepts, meaning and purpose in life as it relates to self, and so much more. Thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, today we're going to tackle something light—not too much to digest for our audience. We're going to talk about the self, a topic that I'm sure no one in history has given much thought.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: we're going to solve it. We're going to answer all the questions today. But this idea of like who we are, what is consciousness, um, and how does it go awry is foundational to psychology, um, foundational to the way we think about mental illness and how we go about helping other people. And we certainly do a lot of exploring with the self when we try to approach mental health from using these psychedelic tools. So um, I'm going to pass it on to you guys. uh, Thoughts and concepts around the self. So Hmm.
2: something when you were talking about how important it was for you in your college days to figure out what the self is, I was wondering what do you think drove that? Why was it so important to you to figure that out? Mm-hmm.
1: Steve's search for meaning. Yeah, <laughs> and this was this yeah. was
2: something
0: we were talking about before we started recording. But yeah, when I when I was in college, I uh, it was really important for me to know sort of what the truth was, capital T truth. I was yeah. I was raised in a, a fairly conservative religion that that um, had the answers for me mm-hmm. and never had much cause to doubt those answers until later in life when I was. Learning that things seemed a little bit more complicated than I had always assumed. And it was just really, it's hard to describe why, but really important for me to understand um, the nature of the mind, to understand the nature of reality, so that maybe, so that I knew what I was thinking, the decisions that I was making were correct. Like I had a really hard time with, with ambiguity and a really hard time with making mistakes, and mm. especially in my, in my early 20s. So, yeah, I I started studying a lot about the self and about the mind. And it's what really got me into psychology generally. Didn't find any of the (laughs) answers, at least not the concrete answers I was hoping for.
2: Yeah. Maybe there's just more questions. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Where does your search for self date back to, Vari?
2: I think for me, like any curiosity or questions I have is always like comes from that place of curiosity first, but then always wanting to be like, how can this help me or how can this help someone else? And so when I like try and think about the self, what's important to me in answering those questions is when we, when we're able to know what's, what's important, then we can maybe get healing or move on from unhealthy ways of living or coping.
1: Yeah. And I'll, I'll throw in a confession that I think, you know, personally and in most other people that search for meaning and self comes from a place of anxiety as well yeah. like in fact if you if you dig into the neurobiological underpinnings of what is the self like the the self with the lowercase s not the capital s supreme self um it's you know a bundle of uh, ner- nerves and pathways sure like the default mode network sure but where does it come from and why it's like an effort to predict what's going to happen in a way mm. like there's this hierarchical predictive coding like that we wire and modify as we go due to the uncertainty that is not only uncomfortable but you know it develops in part for our survival as a species like there was a zen teacher who uh what he said struck me once when someone asked, "How much ego do you need? Mm-hmm. Uh, just enough so you don't get hit by a bus, but you need a little <laughs> bit." Right. Yeah. 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 So,
0: yeah. So. So now you're you're making me think of the the uh, the evolutionary underpinnings or, or roots of of self awareness. Yeah. Like when when did we in this mm-hmm. evolutionary timeline, when 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 did we get the capacity to look back at the looker, you know, t- to say. Hmm. Oh, I'm I'm thinking about something. And other people might be thinking about it differently. My perception mm-hmm. might be off. Like I wonder when theory of mind happened. And it and if we're looking at it from an evolutionary lens, it was selected for and made us the arguably the dominant species on the planet. There's obviously something useful. And maybe not getting hit by a bus is a good way to describe it. Or
1: was it when the monkeys ate the mushroom? Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could have been that too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so well, with the
2: anxiety thing, I remember even being really young and being so afraid of losing my sense of self or hallucinating or becoming schizophrenic. And it was this this huge panic for me that I might lose myself. or mm-hmm. And I think a big part of that is because it's almost like when you lose that sense of self, you lose community around you you lose that connection yeah. with everyone else and that is so frightening
1: yeah just like death is frightening yeah um but the the psychosis tidbit is interesting because i've always been intrigued by the fact that uh there are some similarities between the psychotic state and yeah. the psychedelic state mm-hmm. right but there are some differences in outcome like you don't surrender into psychosis it's just why i think they're not the same in the end or there's not the same result is we don't say, Oh, just like given to your schizophrenia, go for it. Like we fight it. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the psychedelic experience, the number one intention people go in with is like surrender. You go completely there so you can kind of relax, dissolve that little S self, get into the big S self and then come out with a new perspective um, and if you look at even outside of the realm of plant medicines and psychedelics, the traditional shamanic path is often one of psychosis mm-hmm. and emerging from mm-hmm. that, like a phoenix from the ashes or with this this uh, you know access to things beyond the little s self.
0: yeah, yeah, and you see that come up in um, a lot of Jung's work and the hero's journey. That, yeah. that there's something valuable and universal in the human spirit about having to pass through a crucible, having to pass through the dark night of the soul, and there's something to be learned about the soul by uh, experiencing its loss or experiencing its shadow
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: and then you know coming out on the other side enlightened or better. And um, when you think of it therapeutically, that in a way psychedelics and other things provide for people that experience
1: a death experience yeah essentially yeah mm-hmm. and so you can be reborn like right. you have to lose yourself to find yourself
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. right you know what helped me kind of see this from a new perspective is when well the buddhist and the hindu approaches but it, it was especially when i dove in deep to yoga and yoga philosophy there's this idea that uh, we're all part of this ocean of consciousness. And just like the ocean has waves that look like unique individual things, and but they're not. They're really part of this greater ocean. Um, and in the some of the Vedic texts, like the Yoga Sutras, there's one that says, the seeker becomes the, the seer. On your path to self-realization, uh, eventually there's this point where something switches and you realize that you're not on a path you are the path Mm -hmm. or like we all are made of the same stuff Mm -hmm. we are all one Mm -hmm. and so much of our suffering so much of our conflict comes from the fact that we've forgotten that Mm
2: -hmm. yeah so that's an interesting idea can do you think you can be one if there isn't a self like there aren't individual selves to become one together like Is that part of it? Like, do you need to have a self in order to join selves and be one? Like, is there an important part of being an individual as well as oneness?
0: Uh, I think, I mean, your question begs a lot of other questions, I think. Like, when we're talking about being one, you can talk about it from a lot of different perspectives. One with the universe, one with a concept like purpose uh, and meaning, or our fractured selves being unified in purpose or at least um, well mitigated through this, the capital S self. Mm-hmm. So that's a fancy way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I,
2: I just know that when I have felt most one with those around me, it's when my fake, I'd say my fake self has been completely dissolved and I'm just my true essence and they are too. And there is, there is, that connection between us and love between us. And I feel like I, I feel like having, you know, this unique thing that you are mixed with the unique thing that they are and joining that together and being being together in your uniqueness and yet oneness is like is where that nirvana experience is. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. if I don't if I don't exist anymore as an entity does it even matter that I'm joining up with someone? Because I don't even have the sense of what it was to be separate. I don't know. Like, yeah. it's just... <laughs> <laughs> These are mind-bending questions. But
1: <laughs> but uh, I do, I mean, this is just my belief and not something that I can prove. But I, I do believe that you can coexist in those two planes or realms of form and formless. And in fact, that's kind of the goal of all of this. The contemplative practices, the spiritual path the psychedelic experience to get you on that path is so that you can remember your unity, your oneness, mm. that God inside each of us, and then bring that into day to day life like the, the Buddhist saying uh before enlightenment, chop carry wood, after enlightenment, chop carry wood. You know, you come <laughs> back and you do your thing. Or yeah. Jack Cornfield says, after ecstasy, the laundry. Mm-hmm. Still gotta do it, but you can remember your your true nature.
2: Yeah.
0: After ecstasy, the laundry. Sometimes when my clients have important insights that seem to carry with them capital S self energy, like they seem very Uh present and compassionate Mm -hmm. and curious, I'll say to them, drop a breadcrumb right here. And on your way out of it, leave a trail. Because eventually you're not going to feel like you feel right now. Mm -hmm. You're going to get home. You're partner will say something triggering, you'll be back into anger, you'll mm-hmm. get defensive. Um, and that's okay. That's, for whatever reason, the nature of the human mind, nature of human consciousness. And so what, what is mental health and what is self-care or working on oneself, if not following the breadcrumbs back and mm-hmm. having practices that help you see the crumbs uh, yeah. and and follow them back. in practices like meditation or mm. yoga or exercise, or sometimes it's medicine, sometimes it's being in nature, um, breathing practices, like there's lots of different ways human beings have used to find the path back, but it's hard to do it if you've never been there. yeah, right. If you haven't had an opportunity to drop the crumbs, it's hard to follow the path back.
1: Yeah, it shows you the way it opens the gates, the portals. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that the breadcrumb. Analogy in uh, retreat settings, whether it's ayahuasca internationally or even ketamine assisted psychotherapy retreats here, often at the end, we'll have the client, uh, the group, build a castle around that experience, like store Mm -hmm. it away in a special, sacred way so you know where to go. Even with our music in the ketamine room, like we'll often tell people, Yeah, use a special playlist, save it, and revisit it for one tiny way of many that you can reaccess that that uh transpersonal state mm-hmm. that spiritual self
0: yeah I, I had a client who uh at the peak of his medicine experience happened to be listening to this one imagined dragon song
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah
0: and it was a song that was unremarkable to him before but now he, he's used that as, as a lodestone mm-hmm. you know as something to draw him back to that place when he listens to it and he doesn't want to over listen it he doesn't he doesn't want to like you know radio kill it so that it's uh no longer meaningful to him so he saves it for those times when he needs to get back into that consciousness
2: yeah there must be something really important about the ordinary and then the extraordinary of a psychedelic experience because most of us or you know, When they give um, a psychedelic an option for a mouse or a rat, whatever, they, they only push it once, that's it. And it's not like most of us have that experience and every day we're just hooked up to a psychedelic experience. I mean, there must be something important in coming back to this very ordinary laundry-doing realm, mm-hmm. and then, but then also having those extraordinary experiences to inform the ordinary.
1: Mm-hmm. I think uh, they're initiation tools. Like they Mm -hmm. help you see, remember, get on the path. And then like Alan Watts said, when you get the message, hang up the phone. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they it's I think the reason why for many people, the more psychedelics you do over time, they start to lose their um, their potency in a way. Like they become less and less game changing for your life if you're just doing them all the time. Uh, versus when your mind and your heart was blown wide open the first time. Right. Yeah. You Because know, I think they get you on the path. They're initiatory experiences. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: Do you think you have to have that ego death where there's you no longer remember your name? There's You have no sense of self in order to get to that place of, of I don't know, the epitome of what a psychedelic experience yeah. is supposed to be and do for you?
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I think even if you catch a little glimpse, like you see a speck of light at the end of the tunnel, you know where to go. Mm. And then the work—the real work is after ecstasy, right? And I think you can get a glimmer of that uh, samadhi nirvana state or that um, transpersonal experience, or you can get kind of blasted into it, lose yourself entirely. And that... Uh, I think that has some other benefits in terms of like relaxing those tightly held prior beliefs letting you yeah. move forward with a blank slate but mm. I don't think you need it yeah
2: yeah
0: I was listening to Jamie wheel
1: talk about he he, he wrote stealing fire
0: he's um mm-hmm. you know he's coming out with a new book on some of these topics but he's kind of famous slash infamous for being critical of this, this social scene that's developing around this new psychedelic renaissance mm-hmm. and and then the spiritual bypasses that are happening Yeah, but you know people sort of getting addicted quote unquote to ecstasis you know to mm-hmm. the ecstasy given by ego loss or um, being in you know the realm of the enlightened and not coming back and, and doing the laundry what, what maybe we would call integration because you've mm-hmm you're not always the ocean. Most of the time you're the wave and you know, yeah. the, the wave is what exists in your life. And maybe you're not doing yourself or your community, um, or your family or whatever, any favors. If you are always often enlightened land.
2: Yeah.
0: So when I think about helping people with psychedelics, you want to provide for them the experience and it's powerful, often involves an obliteration of the ego provides for them. These great insights, um, but maybe what's most important is the is the metabolization and integration of the insights. Yeah, I agree. Not easy, but.
2: Well, it's not always a like ecstatic experience either. Sometimes it's hard and scary, and those are important too. Maybe, maybe more important. I, I think don't so. Know. <laughs> I think
1: so. You know, and in the psilocybin literature, they look at the. This is out of Imperial College, but they'll look at the mystical experience questionnaire at the MEQ30 and something they developed called the Emotional Breakthrough Inventory and showed that the lasting change is more likely to occur when you have a high mystical experience and you have a high score on the emotional breakthrough. I mean, you face mm-hmm. the dark night of the soul, you made it through the other side, you came out, changed, returned with gifts in the hero's journey, mm-hmm. and... You know, I've we've measured that in ayahuasca retreats and the ketamine room countless times, and uh, you know, I believe it. It holds true. Even the the Humphrey Osmond story of when he was sitting there with Nate Hoffer, another psychiatrist, half joking, say maybe we should give LSD to individuals with alcoholism mm-hmm. um, and make them psychotic because LSD kind of does that, and because when an, an individual with alcoholism has delirium, they tend to uh, recover more because that was a terrifying experience. But he's like, what if we can occasion that? And then the more they thought about it, they were like, yeah, that uh, there might be something to it. And there was, you know, they gave it to thousands of people and showed way better recovery rates.
0: Yeah, it was kind of like inducing the rock bottom that, um, mm-hmm. yeah. that people hit. I seem to remember from that story that somebody else told them, there was like a third person involved that said, yeah, but maybe add some love to it, too. Because mm-hmm. I read about it recently, and I can't remember exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's
1: like in the schizophrenia uh, thing. You can't surrender and let go to lose yourself completely and then find yourself without someone holding safe space or providing that loving, supporting presence or that hand to pull you out of the abyss if, right. if you need it. You know.
2: Yeah. Well, Which... and, and with addictions, I feel like just from my own personal philosophy, is it's just a way to, to avoid facing things that are so painful mm-hmm. a lot of times. And so if you go mm-hmm. in and you face those head-on, why would you need the alcohol anymore? You already did the thing that you never wanted to do, that you kept avoiding by numbing, and you, you just did it. So now you're not afraid of it anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, I think addiction yeah. is a really good lens to look at self through, huh. like I heard Gaber Mate say, when you look at an, when you're addressing an addiction, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. Kind of like you were saying, yeah. yeah, like what what is this person trying to to soothe, to address, to hide, to run from with their addictive behavior? And if you've ever had the experience of sort of arguing with yourself, then you know what it's like to have multiple selves. Like my morning self was super motivated, exercised, mm-hmm. made plans for what my evening self was going to do, right? My morning self had plans for my evening self to read and stretch and pray and meditate and be uh-huh. magnanimous to my children. and, But instead, my evening self just watched YouTube for three hours and stayed up too late. You know, So uh, this multiplicity of selves is something I've been thinking about a lot uh-huh. lately as I've been um, introduced to internal family systems, uh, uh, an, a therapeutic approach that is often used in... Uh, some of these research projects that are being done on psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and also uh, James Fadiman's book, *The Symphony of Selves*, which I'm about halfway through, um, and it's it's a comforting way for me to think about how self-defeating we can be. It, it's it's less confusing to me because it's like, oh, I'm self-defeating because I've got more than one self, and sometimes they're at odds
1: and they sh- they showed up for a reason like yeah. one of those selves showed up after a wound to protect you from that wound getting touched again right like a behavior mm-hmm. that numbs you out from the pain that you didn't have the resources to handle at the time so then it was like a defense and and the thing about healing our multiple selves or integrating reintegrating those is you know, you can't do it by fighting with them or you can't bring your exiled self back with by yelling at it, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a loving approach to um, thank you for what you did to protect me at a time that I really needed it, but we're okay now, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. We got this together in a more conscious way.
2: Again, how important yeah. those, like, disgusting or shameful parts are that they mm-hmm. that even though there's things that maybe we don't want anyone else to see and we want to hide that they they do so much good and we need all of it we need the ones that everyone likes to see and the ones that we don't want anyone to see like they are all of us and they all play a role and and do something good for us
0: yeah we need all of it right we need the whole system and and we need them to be healthy um to be healthy we need them to be in harmony like we need we need yeah. not to be cacophonous in there we need them to be synced up in order to do that as i'm thinking about what you said reed um there needs to be a uh like a culture of compassion and love not one of criticism or judgment or mm-hmm. harshness or rejection um So I'm thinking about the yin-yang, the balance of the the quote-unquote masculine and feminine energies. They serve different roles. And if one is too dominant, then the system isn't healthy. But if they're in balance and harmony, then things work out better.
1: Yeah, yeah, I see. (laughs) I think it's because I heard Dick Schwartz, who created IFS, say it once is that the selves, the parts that we all have inside of us or that make up our bigger multiplicity of selves, you can see them as like individuals sitting around a conference table and they could be bickering, battling, or they could be working harmoniously and you're going to get a lot more done mm-hmm. if there's harmony and peace and respect yeah. uh, amongst yourselves.
0: Right. And in, in order to get that, you've got to understand where the other selves are coming from. Like I'm thinking about yeah. a, a, a married couple that's arguing. A lot of times the argument isn't about what they're talking about. It's about the stories behind the conflict and yeah. so maybe you approach your own selves in a similar way. Like this, this particular self is showing up. It's making me want to feel and do X, Y, or Z. But maybe it, like you were referring to earlier, it's, it's there for these other reasons. And I need to understand and give compassion to those other reasons in order for it to calm down and retreat and be agreeable.
2: And it's interesting in IFS because there is a lot of pre-work that needs to be done that you have this bigger um, capital S self that is well-developed that can be there to support all of these other small S's. And so even in IFS, there's this idea of there being a true self or... Mm -hmm. A A higher self. A higher self, yeah. Yeah.
0: And it has certain qualities in Schwartz. I think it's like the eight C's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Compassion and... and, Calm or curious. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Which are a lot of the things that one gets out of a psychedelic experience, which is interesting too. So maybe it's not... A dissolving of yourself maybe it's a stripping down to that true self to that self that you know with with religious beliefs that you hope that higher being sees in you and that you try to get to too
0: or that is the higher being right it's god consciousness yeah Mm -hmm. it's if if there's an organizing energy or a deity or whatever that's the stuff that it's made of
2: yeah, and maybe we've just personified that into a religious figure, but it is that internal.
1: And even in the religions where it is personified, you know, Jesus will still say, like, the kingdom of God is within you. Mm-hmm. Right? you know, I think right. that's a common theme to the religious um, schools of thought that are all seeking, they're all different paths up this same mountain or path to mm-hmm. that supreme self god consciousness ultimate truth mm-hmm.
0: so i wanted to read a small excerpt from um an introduction to internal internal family systems model do you
2: like us to scoot up and get on the rug? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, gonna show, I'm, uh-huh. I'm gonna
0: show it to you like a school librarian oh thank you read, yeah read and, you and like make that. sure
2: you story go like time so we can all Steve. see it
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'll read it my best uh, narration voice so this is an excerpt from the velveteen rabbit that schwartz includes in the book What is real? asked the rabbit one day. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily, or who have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand and he, the word real is capitalized each time they say it once you're real you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand there's a kind of felt experienced knowing when you when you have had the experience of God consciousness or self or you know the things we've been talking about um, that when somebody else has had that experience and you start talking to somebody else about it, there's like a, oh, you know. Like, you you know what this feels like. Either you've achieved it through prayer or meditation or psychedelics or whatever it is. Suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I see you, kind of like you were talking about earlier, Vara, you, you feel best when you can be undefended and completely authentically you. There's something so beautiful about being with somebody who... Exemplifies that, and being a person who can exemplify that, because you can't be despicable, you can't be ugly, even if you're being obnoxious or bad, because nothing human is disgusting if it's understood. I heard, <laughs> I heard a uh, a uh, uh, what are they called? Plastic surgeon. He was on one of those like really gross shows where it's like you know uh, extreme makeovers. We're gonna you know resculpt your entire face mm-hmm. and body. I heard him say when someone was complaining about the way that they looked, because this guy was going to restructure the way that they looked, like, oh, yeah, and this part about me is so disgusting. And he said, nothing human is disgusting. Hmm. And I thought that was beautiful, if not ironic, coming from a plastic surgeon <laughs> uh, who changes and alters all those things.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that quote. It, yeah. uh, it's so true. You You can't really unsee it once you've seen it I mean you can you can forget you're going to stumble and get distracted uh, yeah it is a continual practice but uh, it can be a radical change in perspective where you forever see the world in a different way Mm -hmm. whether it's a psychedelic experience or some profound mystical experience in religious or contemplative practices or or even out of the blue
0: any other uh, profound thoughts? or They don't have to be
1: profound. Non-profound. Well, we don't have enough time. I'll take all, that. <laughs> all of Ari's <laughs> all profound, of my thoughts. profound thoughts. thoughts. So one story comes to mind to mm. end with that relates to uh, psychedelics and the self, I think. But it was, this isn't my story. It's a Ram Dass story. Mm. But, uh, and I've been geeking out on his stories lately is... He was uh, doing an LSD experiment once, and he timed it wrong. So it was actually peaking by the time his <laughs> Sunday family lunch occurred. So he goes to this, and he's uh, at the peak of a high-dose LSD session where, to the point where the faces of his family were animals, right? So, but he, he knows how to navigate his psychedelic experience by then. So he sits down at the dinner table and his brother, who they have this feisty relationship. His brother is poking fun at him the same way he normally would. or like, how's your psychology work? Or just making fun of things. And he'd normally react when he's in his egoic self. But in this state, he saw the brother's words, who's got this animal face, coming at him like arrows in slow motion, and then he'd hmm. just pick them up and set them down next to his fork and spoon. Wow. And then his response in this... Like, in this place he'd sunk into beyond the ego, uh, where he could feel that oneness and love, he would reply with loving things. Like, your family is so beautiful, or like, I really love this about you. And then he would see these hearts going back and hitting his brother in the face. And then that started to spread through the family dinner to the point where um, afterwards, even the next day, they were like calling each other saying wasn't that the best family gathering ever? Don't we have the most amazing family? And that didn't normally occur. And so he called that uh, shifting the game um, through psychedelics or um, all these other paths we're talking about.
0: Yeah, paths that generate awareness. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, and kind of back to where I started of how I had this like deep fear of losing myself and then realizing that... There, there's nothing to be afraid of. Maybe that's to be embraced. And I remember having a moment of that. We have um, a history of Alzheimer's in my family. And I'd always looked at Alzheimer's as this horrible thing and, mm-hmm. and how it's so important to check in with that person, ask them what date it is, you know, keep them here and now. And I remembered listening to this NPR thing where there was this man who had his, he was taking care of his mom and he just kept trying to do that, kept trying to bring her down to reality, to where he was. And then he was like, why am I doing this? And then he just joined her where she was. And he was like, we had so much fun. It was magical. She was no longer frustrated. And so he thought he knew what was best. Mm-hmm. He thought that reality was what was best. And really, he was so wrong. And I think that's the greatest thing about psychedelics and about um, those experiences that make us change our whole way of looking at everything and including looking at ourselves, what we're afraid of what's important and who we are, Yeah. for sure.
1: Yeah, beautiful. Thank
0: you.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you for
0: joining us today. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This will help us get into the ears and faces of more people and help us put wind in the sails of the psychedelic medicine renaissance. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.